when you've had this very insular, self-sufficient, self-absorbed life, maybe one way of um, making it more balanced and healthy is to very mindfully look outside of that bubble. Uh, sports psychologists are also very much encouraging people not to like hook their identity to their pursuit. Make sure it's multifaceted. You're not just the person who does that thing. And then when you retire through injury, you're going to be plunged into addiction again. <laughs> you know. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Howdy, folks. It's RJ Singh here from Ultra Habits, and thank you for joining us on today's episode where we are going to unpack subcultures. We are going to talk about endurance and view it through a non-traditional lens. So we have Jenny Valentish on our show today. She is an author and journalist, and we are here to talk about her recent book, Everything Harder Than Everyone Else, Why Some of Us Push Our Bodies to Extremes. In this wonderful piece of investigative journalism, she unpacks stories from the outliers and outsiders in society that what can they teach us about endurance. So we are talking about ultra-endurance athletes, porn stars, bare-knuckle boxers, people that lift really, really heavy weights, the people that eat weird and wonderful things, people that are pushing their mind, body, spirit way over the edge. And there is so much that we can learn in terms of the good and obviously the not-so-good. And we are here to deep dive into this. Now, Jenny is an accomplished journalist. She has written for The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald, Guardian, Saturday Paper, and Rolling Stone, and has been involved with Vice as well. She's on the board of directors of Smart Recovery Australia, so she's a sister-in-arm. She's been sober for a while. She also does a lot of kickboxing and extreme stuff herself. She actually lives in country Victoria. She hails originally from the UK. She has chronicled her own journey in substance abuse in a memoir slash research hybrid called Women of Substances, which investigates the female experience of drugs and alcohol. Some super interesting stuff, so check it out. But we are going to leave you in the capable hands of Jenny. Really think about the applicable nature of endurance through your eyes and how these stories may be extreme and the pursuits may be extreme, but what can we learn in terms of our own craft for anyone that's trying to get there or anyone that's already there in the executive landscape, we are talking about a 10, 20, 30 year consistent level of energy required for us to stay at the top and understanding the mechanisms that other people use within their craft, albeit extreme and polarized, is super important. So anyways, think about that. Peace out. Have a great week, guys. Jenny, welcome to the Ultra Habits Show. We have finally made it. We've had some technical difficulties, uh, which is the way now in the world, wonderful world of tech that we're operating in. But we just really want to welcome you to the Ultra Habits Show. Thanks, RJ. It's really good to get on the show. You know, I've been listening to it religiously. That's fantastic. So yeah, a bit of a, a weird story in terms of how we have multiple points of references, right? So uh, you're 
into endurance. You're also a person that's had a colorful history with drugs and alcohol as I have. And it seems like there's been a bit of an overlap in terms of conversations that we've had with people like Ed Hadronon, Charlie Engel, Courtney Olson, and uh, it's, I guess, fortuitous that our paths have crossed. Can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, of course. I'm a journalist. Um, so I, I tend to write for The Guardian and the, the ABC and The Age, Sydney Morning Herald, those kind of papers. And I used to be a magazine editor. And I moved to Australia from the UK back in 2006. Uh, I've written quite a few books since I've been here. Um, and my preference is the, the non-fiction kind of line of inquiry. So um, the most recent is everything harder than everyone else, which is why people push their bodies to extremes. But the one before that, in a strange way, was related. It was called Woman of Substances, A Journey into Addiction and Treatment. And it was an addiction memoir of sorts because I um, used myself as a case study. Uh, <laughs> but um, it, it really went deep into the research that's out there around, you know, why why addictive behaviours occur, especially with a gendered lens. Um, and if it was from that that the idea for this new book arose, actually. Because, I mean, it's, I'm really interested in the fine line between hedonism and endurance, which I'm sure you can relate to. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And, and uh, I'm just going to digress to the right for a second. I know that you know, we're both recovering or we're both in our own ways dealing with our addictions in different forms. And I'm in 12 step, which is abstinence in your, I think in smart recovery, which is harmonization. Harmonization, yeah. How, can you explain to me, and obviously you know the AA uh, way, I, I would suggest you do. And uh, for us, it's quite difficult to wrap our heads around how, we can use or still drink successfully. Can you explain the ethos within that forum and how you guys actually manage the beast? Because in effect, you're still dancing with it to a degree, right? Like you can still yeah. use and drink, right? So how do you do that? Well, first of all, smart recovery, um, I would say probably most people are abstinent. It's just that it allows for um, people who want to moderate as well. Um, but I don't go to meetings. I'm on their board. I'm, I'm a board director. Um, so I actually quit alcohol completely for eight years. Um, and that was eight years spent very much working on myself and adjusting everything that needed to be adjusted and reading up a lot. Uh, going to, I did go to smart meetings then. I went to AA meetings then for 18 months. Uh, like I did everything, any, anything that was on offer in terms of help, I took it. And so I really addressed my, my behavior. I had to learn to do everything without alcohol. Um, Cause you know, I started very young at 13 and then I got into all sorts of drugs. Um, so everything was, uh, everything was addressed. And I found, I, I thought around the five year mark, I probably could drink again, but at the same time I thought, but why would you, you know, just stick with it. And then around the, the eight-year mark, I did go out for some drinks with friends in the UK. And um, to my surprise, it was 
okay. And um, so that's four years ago. Right. And it has been okay for me. Like there's not been any uh, alarming points at all. And I was that person who couldn't just have one drink or just one cigarette or anything, <laughs> one of anything. So um, I, you know, I guess I've just rewritten that kind of behavior pattern and also mm. I have completely different priorities now I'm so into training I'm into kickboxing mm. and you know harness and pole dancing and I would never want to give up a day's training like I'm obsessed by it I would never want a hangover to get in the way so mm. so it is completely um done in moderation now uh, and I don't think that's possible for everyone but I think it's possible for more people than we think I I would agree with you I think we draw an all or nothing line in recovery because it's a safer bet in yeah. that sense. And, and I get that. And uh, you've reorientated yourself to a higher purpose and a new priority. Uh, whereas addicts, we're rudderless. You now have a strong rudder, right? So yeah. that, uh, you know, I just wanted to quickly digress there because it was an interesting conversation. I wanted to, to unpack that a little bit, but focusing back on, the book everything harder than everyone else what led you to dive into that because there's some there's some pretty out there shit in there and it's great it's a great read it's really entertaining it's insightful but what took you down that path like explain to us why you wanted to go there <laughs> yeah so i mean it's a book where each chapter looks at a different kind of extreme pursuit and why the people are doing it and how they can do it as well and it probably won't surprise you to know that quite a few had histories of addiction um, but the idea for the book came up when I was writing Women of Substances I was thinking about how when I was in the throes of addictive behavior I was kind of obsessed with how far I could push my body like it was this grisly kind of obsession with you know I just want to have yet another cigarette on this bender and like kind of almost feel like I can hear my lungs singe or you know this you know another line another this another that it was this fascination with the body and um I was thinking about control and how a lot of people who've had like a traumatic childhood for instance are drawn to substance use eating disorders self-harm and in a way it's like an expression of self-loathing but it's also this kind of bloody-minded control over the body often a regaining of control as well if people have, you know, has any kind of physical or sexual abuse. Um, so I wanted to look more into that, that idea of control and endurance. And um, I, I had noticed that there is a weird intersection, there's a, a weird kind of overlap of people who quit substances who then get into endurance racing in particular, like more than any other kind of sporting pursuit. So like ultra running, cycling that kind of thing and I was looking more into that there's so many memoirs of people who gave up drugs and got into um running long distance running I mean um the the main person I profiled in the book and he was probably the first person I interviewed on that topic was Charlie Engel who you know he wrote the memoir The Running Man and he used to have a, a massive crack habit in fact you know like his car was shot at by dealers he'd break up you know, in neighbourhoods with with all his possessions gone because the woman he'd found who said it hooked him up with the drugs had run off with them. You know, he was pretty deep into it. 
And now he's in his 60s and he does all these incredible feats. Like, I think he ran for like 27 hours straight when he was celebrating his 27th year of sobriety. He's run across the Sahara. He's done all these things. And so I was talking to him and he's given it so much thought. And he was saying he gets the same kind of validation as he does when he tells people he's doing like a run across all these deserts as he did when he was buying crack off dealers and they were like a bit alarmed at how much he was buying and you're not going to smoke all that are you and he's like yeah yeah right I am so he has that same sense of being an outlier that kind of pride but there's also all these crossovers of you know this sense of self-punishment like this these really long endurance races are just grueling on the mind and body they're quite meditative stroke ruminative um there's transcendence involved hopefully there's all these you know chemicals being released so there is quite a strange crossover between the two and from there I thought I'll look at other pursuits like bare knuckle boxing and deathmatch wrestling and BDSM and all sorts where people really have to throw themselves and full force into it and kind of sacrifice their bodies on the altar and talk to them about what they've discovered. Mm, it's such an interesting topic. So here's the, here's the, the, the context and why I want to unpack this. So you know, I was talking to someone, a business coach, and she said to me, she said that she's never come across anyone successful in business that hasn't been rebelling against their trauma to a degree, right? Like trauma is the foe and they personify that in how they pursue and aim for success, right? And you're, you, you mentioned a study, which I'm going to get you to unpack as well, that UK study, but in your view, I want to get your perspective on, did you find that everyone you spoke to, to a certain degree had and was leveraging their trauma as a means to propel themselves? And can you then reference also and talk about that UK study? Because I think that's really important for context. Yes, all everyone except two people who were very clear to tell me, you're probably looking for some torment here, but I can promise you I'm the least tormented person you'll ever meet. They were, just briefly, they were the performance artist Stellark, who performance artist, artist especially in the 70s, which is when he began, did insane things with their bodies, you know. They'd, they'd really maim themselves. They'd be jumping out of windows. There might be knives and guns involved. Like, in his case, it was, um, oh, gosh, uh, doing things like swallowing painful sculptures that would then open up in his stomach, and he did lots of flesh hook suspension. He had um, liposuction and all sorts of things. Um, but, but he insists that, you know, he's, he's an artist and this is just conceptual kind of work. And the other person was a neuroscientist called Dr. Jack Aloka, who absolutely polarizes everyone who reads the book. He had this, um, he has these personal missions that he has. Um, one of them includes eating as many things as possible that would test his disgust response. So every kind of beast dead and alive, like roadkill, I mean, they're all dead, obviously. But roadkill to things that have been hunted, um, 
And um, yeah, again, he says he's not feasting on any trauma here and, and that's not what's fueling him. But apart from that, um, everyone I interviewed either had that kind of childhood trauma background or if they didn't discuss that, at the very least, they were very, very restless, kind of naturally agitated people. I call them the natural born leg jigglers because everyone would be like, through the interview. Um, a few of them told me they have ADHD. So people who basically have this very, very restless energy that needs to go somewhere. Now you mentioned a study and that became key to um, the book actually. And one of my interviewees told me about it. She's a power lifter and um, strongman athlete called Camilla Fogagnolo. And um, she had been brought up by this disciplinarian father like homeschooled her and her siblings were raised on a farm completely isolated they had this kind of soviet style training regime every day of like rope climbing and you know commando crawling and weightlifting and judo and everything um and she also had awful things happen to her like sexual abuse and she said she'd given this so much thought with her coach they they'd stumbled across this 2016 study UK study. Uh, it was led by sports psychology professor Lou Hardy. Um, and it took 32 athletes. 16 were like super elite athletes who'd won gold at Olympic, that kind of standard. And then the other 16 were elite athletes. So there were commonalities between the two groups, um, like, you know, having been raised to have a very strong work ethic or be competitive. But there was one crucial difference, which was every single person in the super elite athlete group had experienced childhood trauma compared to only four of the elite group. And so, you know, the, the, the suggestion from that is that it, this very painful experience early on in life has given them, you know, some kind of resilience, mental toughness, self-sufficiency, um, that has allowed them to push through pain and discomfort. And Camilla was saying it makes so much sense to her because she doesn't consider herself to be a particularly gifted athlete, I would disagree, but she has smashed so many records and gone so much further than people she thinks are more naturally gifted because they just give up when it gets too hard. And she's never gonna give up. You know, she said, I've actually got a quote from her here. She said, you think, if you just trained, you would be Olympic level, but they don't want to hurt. Why would they? They've got nothing to prove. As opposed to people who go, I'm broken, but let's go again tomorrow and the day after and the day after. And if you don't, you beat yourself up over it. You're weak. You've missed out. You failed. It is its own form of self-punishment. Hey guys, just wanted to take a quick break to thank you for your continued support of the ultra habits show it's through your support that we've been able to scale this thing so quickly and so strong over the past year and we're truly grateful for your continued support if you haven't already please go to www.ultrahabits.co and subscribe you'll get cool information insights and be up to date with everything we're doing and also if you haven't, please rate this podcast. The link is in the show notes. When you do this, you help us scale our message of ultra performance and ultimately 
helping us create more impact with our tribe. Anyways, we're going to leave you back in the hands of our wonderful guest. Yeah, there's so much in that. So let's talk about the need for validation, right? Which you, you juxtapose that with trauma. It's a powerful enabler and motivator. What were the downsides that you saw that were potentially playing on people's lives from these two powerful forces? Just maybe you witnessing it, not them explicitly telling you this, but you were actually around these people. So you would have got a good gauge around how well-rounded and how well-adjusted they were to life beyond just the context of their craft. How did you see this play out in a not so positive way, if any? Well, I mean, I want to make clear that I really admire and celebrate these people. Like, I think they found really positive ways of dealing with mm. early life stress. So, I mean, I know what you mean, though. So, for instance, with, with bodybuilders, um, I interviewed two. One was our mate, Courtney Olson. I mean, she's not a bodybuilder now per se, but um, she was a competing bodybuilder. She's the CEO of Girl Clothing. She's like a one-off. She's awesome. She's larger than life. Um, so I interviewed her and another woman called Karen Adigas, who competes in Perth. And yeah, it was really weird. So once I got to know them, I realized, shit, they've got the same story, backstory, which I hadn't realized, um, which was that they both experienced you know, sexual abuse, sexual assault. Um, and they both had, like, mothers that they had really terrible relationship with, parental parental uh, drug use on Courtney's side, um, neglect on Karen's side. And so they have both been drawn to this pursuit where you make yourself invincible. I admire that. Um, but certainly in... in a lot of the interviewees' case, including Karen's and maybe Courtney's, they had a very dispassionate view of their body. Like it was almost like a donkey to be driven, you know? It was there to work for them. There was no sort of compassion for it. It just it had to be pushed as far as possible to prove some kind of point. Um, you know, I mean, with bodybuilding, it's all like really harsh weight cuts and carb loading, and you're kind of, you're kind of like a best in show dog or bull prize bull you know um and so a, a lot of the people i interviewed for this book did have that very dispassionate relationship with their body like um you know the deathmatch wrestler um cracker jack who basically deathmatch is where you are you're armed with weapons and of course it's planned ahead so you know the other person's gonna cut you with a box cutter <laughs> or hit you with something very hard but that might be worse knowing it's coming. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but it is a form of self-harm. And so, you know, some, some people might think that's problematic. I, I just feel that, you know, these people have found an arena in which to do that, in which they excel. So I, I don't really have a problem with it. I think it's a creative way of, of exercising those demons. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I ask you, it's a loaded question, right? Like, so, you know, I think one of the benefits of personally being in recovery 
before pursuing a craft or mastery was I understood how we can switch the witch for the bitch and the negative impact of that, right? Yeah. So like there was a grounding. I didn't go straight into ultra running. I was sober for years and I worked up addictively. Um, but I can totally relate um, in terms of the business context. And when I come up against the wall, all that motivational inspirational coming from a great place of flow fucking goes out the window and I go straight into killer mode. And what I leverage is deep and dark. Um, I think I've gotten to a place where I ensure it doesn't blow up everyone around me. And I think that comes with skill, but I find that when the shit hits the fan, I need to dig deep and touch my pain. And the question is, um, is, is that, and I think it may, you know, it, the answer may be yes. Like, is that the best place for us to come from when we're looking at sustained performance or is there a more elegant, graceful way of stepping into this kind of flow state? And I'm not sure because I've read about it and heard about it, but I have never really experienced being in this state of just blissful flow. For me, I've always had to push and prod and battle. Did you experience in your journeys with these individuals, people that seem to be just in this state of high performance, but it was, it was kind of, there was without battle or would you say that for these high performers you came across and that you interviewed, there was always this kind of inner tension there that they were battling. It was definitely an inner tension there, but I mean, the title of the book is everything harder than everyone else. And it's got a double meaning, you know, it's, um, people who want to prove themselves uh, and go on harder than everyone else, but also people who tend to make life more difficult for themselves than is necessary. <laughs> so look, that was the lens. I mean, that was the lens with which I was using. So I wasn't interested in talking to somebody who took up Taekwondo at the age of five because their parents made them and then they got very good at it. And then they ran Muay Thai, you know, that would be really boring. So it's hard for me to answer your question in that respect, but, um, you know, I have been thinking about more graceful ways and I was thinking about how, how necessary it is to be selfish as a successful athlete. And, you know, sometimes that might have been, that might come from having been wrapped up in a sport from a young age and being told that you're special. But <clears throat> also if you've had a background of trauma, childhood trauma then you have very likely had to be self-sufficient from a young age and untrusting and you know insular and with a feeling that you owe people nothing so maybe that has helped you succeed mm. in your selfishness and maybe that's something though that can be tackled later if you think of Courtney again um I mean Courtney is in 12 steps so she she does service if you like but she she realized at a certain age she had to get rid of this alter ego she'd created which was ko it stands for her initials but it was also like i'm gonna knock you out and she had it tattooed on her arm and everything she realized 
she needed to sort of give back more and be outside of her own mental bubble. And so she covered up the tattoo. She does tons of, I would call it outreach work, really. Like she, even just on social media, her efforts to just draw everyone in and have the difficult conversations are constantly ongoing. And personally, you know, I had a history of addiction, as I said, and I reached a point where I realised as well, I've got to do everything completely differently and practice more empathy. I'm still confused about empathy, whether it's something innate or something we learn. But in my case, it was something that was learned much later than it should have been. <laughs> so, you know, I had to sort of train myself by giving myself exercises, like looking at people on public transport and like making myself think about okay, they're wearing these clothes. Imagine them picking those clothes out and why they pick them out, literally trying to put myself in other people's shoes. And I think a lot of big um, sporting uh, organisations are encouraging their athletes to have empathy and to think outside of their own bubble. I know the AFL um, do things like that, like they try and sort of hook up their players with different charities and things. So that might be one way of, when you've had this very insular, self-sufficient, self-absorbed life, maybe one way of um, making it more balanced and healthy is to very mindfully look outside of that bubble. Uh, sports psychologists are also very much encouraging people not to like hook their identity to their pursuit. Make sure it's multifaceted. You're not just the person who does that thing. And then when you retire through injury, you're going to be plunged into addiction again <laughs> you know that's a very interesting point and there was somewhere in your book i love the the topic of identity because it interrelates into habits we tend to support our perceived identity with habits right so if we can start to play with the identity typically the habits will shift that we engage uh, but there was something in your book where you were talking about validation and the need that we have to inflate our personality to conquer our environment. Uh, that's a very interesting conversation. I think that my personal view <clears throat> is that the need for validation and leveraging trauma is too powerful of a mechanism to not use. So I ask you these questions more so just for your view, but I will always, in my personal view, find it too much of a powerful tool not to use. The question is, is how do we then use that tool skillfully without blowing up our environment? but also putting the tool down when it no longer serves us. For instance, when I need to build the business, uh, the last three months required me to do some heroic shit. And I needed to go to a place where I would sustain performance for a very prolonged period of time. So right now I'm working in the office from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day. Now, what's enabling me to do that is that dark place that is beyond anyone's pet talks, beyond anyone's fucking, you can do this, RJ. It's from a place of pure fucking rage that this will happen. 
But the quest, the key then is when I go home and my wife's there, my baby's there, how do I then turn that off and be skillful enough to then be the dad I need to be and be the husband I need to be without dousing the environment in flames? You see, and I think that's, that's the key. What, what would your view be on what I just said? Well, yes. I mean, compartmentalization, maybe. Yes, <laughs> yes. Athletes or people who've experienced trauma can be very good at that. Um, can you talk about that? Because that's a, that's a big one. You, you actually went into that into your book. Yeah. I mean, it's, it can get quite dark, compartmentalization, because, I mean, it's a skill that you... I, I guess, are uh, trained to have if you're a professional athlete, you can't bring your problems into the pitch just as you shouldn't bring that rage that is powering you at work home. Um, but you do end up with people then having these kind of crazy double lives. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because they are literally able to put guilty feelings. I mean, we'll not even have them because that part of my life's not going to, it's nothing to do with this part. Um, Gosh, it's such a difficult question that you've asked. Um, I, I do know, you do that? Do I do compartmentalize? You, yeah, do you compartmentalize? I wish I could do it more than I can. <laughs> um, okay. No, probably not. I, I'm very curious as to how that is actually taught, how athletes are taught to do that. Do you know? Well, my personal experience is that the environment, w w on the road to self-mastery, you start to become hyper aware of your state at any given time. And then what ends up happening is you have external environments that require you to be a certain way. And if you want to maintain a harmonious relationship with these different external environments, for instance, when I go home, as soon as I put the key in the door, first, when I park my car, at home, I turn off, I switch off. But I, as soon as I go home and put that key in the door and I get in, I try to move. It's just, a, it's a signal to move into a different space and place because I just can't bring that. And even against my best efforts, I bring that mania and manicness sometimes home, which my wife has learned to give me space and, and deal with. But um, there's physical cues as well. So on Fridays, I try to work slower so I don't bring the hangover of RJ corporate into the weekend. Uh, so I need, I need a cue between the week and the weekend. So I think these are, are, are ways. I think having kids forces you to elevate if you want to have a successful home life as well. Like you, if, if I was a single dude, I can bring myself into into my home environment as I am, right? But I yeah. just can't. I think the answer is actually sitting behind your head as I look at you right now, and it's the word habits. I mean, that's basically what you're describing, isn't it? So you've now established a few habits that will take you from one threshold into the other. And um, I, I have really got into the whole habit stacking idea of, all right, you do this one and that, that then makes it easier to do the next one and the next one. And then you've created this new kind of routine that flows more naturally. And so in the book, I did, I did talk about the concept of telic 
and atelic activities, which I'd never heard of. Um, Telic is from uh, telos, meaning goal, and, and the ancient Greek philosophers used to talk about it, and it sort of had a bit of a resurgence of interest. So a telic activity would be something like a deadline, a race, uh, you know, something that's got an end point, we're very driven towards it. Atelic is something that we do just for enjoyment's sake, which is maybe the arena you want to be moving into when you get through the front door of your home. Um, and I looked at my life and I, I didn't have any atelic activities, nor had I ever, because I considered that to be a waste of time. But it's things that you do without any kind of fanfare. Um, Free play, like free play, basically. Yes, yeah, so things like hiking, swimming, crocheting, whatever it is, um, there's not a goal attached to it. And so I've, I've actually, since writing this book, I've forced myself to have some 80 lick activities. It was really forced at first, like I was doing like a mandala drawing workshop. I was like, oh, for God's sake, this isn't me. <laughs> but I found some I really like. And so it does allow me to switch off and move into a different headspace. So I now do um, harness, which is Filipino stick fighting. Um, it doesn't have to be relaxing. <laughs> Just something which isn't about, I've got to meet that goal. I'm on that path to meet that goal. And you can just do it and enjoy it. So, I mean, I go out every day after my cold shower and I go for a walk and um, take my sticks and just look like a weirdo waving them around. When you do harness on your own, it's also called Eskrima and Kali. It, it's kind of more like Tai Chi, you know? It's a really mm. great way of, like, mm. mind and body. Um, and so I do that, and I do pole dancing just for the pleasure of learning. I'm not going to be performing or anything. Because during the writing of the book, I started fighting. And by the end of the book, I had a, a Muay Thai fight. Um, so that was so goal-orientated that oriented that I knew that when I finished the book I was going to have this massive crash because mm. my identity was tied in with being a fighter and also you know being the person who's writing this really hardcore book and then I was going to lose them both and I knew that I'd probably flounder for a bit so that's where your atelic activities come in that's why athletes uh, are encouraged to do these other things other than their pursuit as well so that you don't have this absolute crisis and I think that works for you for, for you and anyone else in that capacity of how do you not bring stuff home with you we've well, got to have these new routines and things that you do that aren't all about get it get it do it get it done oh jenny you're you're my type of chick man so like you're intense that's the thing right like it's it's all kind of performance orientation everything's got to have a fucking big deep and meaningful purpose and i get it like i my wife was like can you just watch some tv like, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's literally that bad. And the thing is, is I think what you just mentioned is you're living skillfully. Like, you recognized you were going to actually crash. Like, super skillful insight. And you preempted that. And, um, and you've gone into your own habits, which is great. And so as we kind of bring this to a close, um, I, I do want to ask you, there is, uh, you being a, a journalist and a writer, I think the biggest... Uh, question the audience would have and certainly myself is how do you create good habits around writing right because I know like that I find that super hard and it's like you don't always feel inspired you don't and I guess maybe it's the same as any endurance sport but like what do you have a system for that 
Yeah, it is a bit like an endurance sport. With yeah. Women and Substances, the addiction book, yeah. ironically, I wrote all of it on modafinil and chain smoking. <laughs> I wasn't using drugs or alcohol. I mean, modafinil doesn't have any euphoric agent. Oh, right, okay. You know, so... But that was how I could focus, the only way. I have been um, uh, diagnosed with ADHD. Um, so I was like, okay, well, that will get me sat at the desk. This time around, I wasn't prepared to do that because of sports. You know, medicinal just kind of take it out of your body as just smoking. So I basically, because I'm very restless, I have this pattern of I just have to keep moving like, every hour or so. So I'll start off maybe at my desk, then I'll move to a cafe, then I'll move to the library. If I'm on a train, that's brilliant. There's me. I don't have to move as long as there's motion, you know. And mm. I can't get off the train, obviously. So it's it's great. Um, so my trick really is to maybe not. Maybe everyone's not as restless as me. I'm, I'm that natural born leg jiggler I mentioned, but is to keep moving and to to then kind of be able to reset and get into it for a spell. Um, but I, I also try and do things as early as possible in the day, get started early. I don't have anything like a set, set number of words or anything like that. It's just keep, all right, have a break, then go back, have a break, then go back, have a break, then go back. And then, so you assess by, by feel by the end of the day, if it was like a productive day, it's not so much number of pages or letters or. Yeah. yeah. But I've also realized some days your headspace is just not writing day that's okay do some admin go and do the garden that you've been neglecting <laughs> just don't force it there are other things that have to be done and it's like some days you're practical you're in a practical headspace and some days you're in a creative headspace work with it instead of against it it's beautiful advice uh jenny and before we before we go can you tell our listeners and viewers where they can find more uh, stuff, you know, from you, books, you know, where's your information at? Yeah, I've really kept it all to Instagram because it's doing my head in trying to do multiple platforms. Um, so um, on Instagram, I do things like readings from my various books and just general chat and stuff like that. So it's Jenny Valentish underscore public. Um, and the books are available from all the usual kind of online vendors. Um, you know, the, the unmentionable one beginning with A, Booktopia, all, all of them really. You can just Google the book titles and you can buy them online really easily. I'd appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a brilliant book, brilliant read, love it, really entertaining. And it's, is it, is the, is the audio book, that's not you, is it? But it, they, they've done it with someone that sounds like you. Yeah. You know what? I should have done it. They offered it to me, and I just thought it would take me about 10 times longer than a professional. But since then, <laughs> as I said, I've been doing all these like mini readings on Instagram, and I've been really enjoying it, and now I'm kicking myself. Oh, not she, look, she did a good job. I, I think she encapsulated your style yeah, very yeah. much so. So I think it was it was good. But uh, look, I think we'll leave it there. Again, thank you so much for your time, Jenny. Really enjoyed our chat. I think there was a lot of in insight into endurance, um, trauma, performance, and, you know, enough information to lead people to think, well, how are they interacting with all three? And are they doing it in a way that's sustainable? Or are they blowing everything up in their pursuit of performance? Because I think 
I come across it in corporate all the time. People are just blowing their lives up, unhealthy, unfit. Kids hate them, wife hates them, you know. So you've given us a lot to think about. And again, just really appreciate you and, and appreciate the time you've given us today. Oh, thanks so much, RJ. I really enjoyed that.